0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. This week, we bid farewell to the last of the liberal fiscal conservatives. We also learn how standard legacy manufacturers can live in harmony with new technology like AI. And we take a look at how the fight against climate change has shifted and why the traditional climate champions are shifting their focus. But we begin with what some might call an inventory recession. Evercore Chairman Ed Hyman tells Bloomberg News that the Fed should consider slowing down the interest rate hikes.
0: At this point, the one more is baked in the cake. <coughs> Uh, I think anything from now is a mistake. They're just creating a deeper recession uh, or the more uh, likelihood of a recession.
1: But recession may be here for one industry already. It looks more and more like the materials and industrial world is either in or headed for some kind of slowdown. And we welcome Bloomberg Opinion columnist, Chris Bryant. He covers industrial companies in Europe. Chris, always a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time with us. Um, The CEO of a chemical maker in Germany called the decline in sales volumes Lehman 2. Wow. What is going on?
2: Well, I mean, Amy, I thought this was uh, too uh, irresistible to ignore. When these comments came a couple of weeks ago, it really sent a bit of a shock market around a shock around the stock market, uh, because frankly, you know, comparisons to 2008 really have people on edge. And, you know, chemicals is a very significant uh, industry. It's not one people like to think about very often because the products are often quite complicated and the use cases are so diverse. But that's exactly why it's an important indicator to keep an eye on. So when you have a chemical maker saying that the outlook, you know, for sales is like, you know, the worst he's seen since uh, 2008, then really we need to sit up and listen. And, and what the CEO of Lanxess was basically saying is, yes, volumes are now uh, de- declining at such a rapid pace. And the, the, the prolonged nature of these uh, sales declines as well is really stopping to, to worry him and the sector more good.
1: Never dawned on me before that this could be kind of a canary in the coal mine situation when it comes to watching the sales of chemicals. Um How does that chemical industry then help provide that signal for what is to come? Why monitor chemicals? Let's get deeper into that.
2: Chemicals, of course, are very high up in in value chains, you know, basic uh, petrochemical products that then get put into other products and and before, you know, that product reaches the consumer and therefore they're exposed to a very high number of of end markets anything from, say, the construction industry uh, through to consumer products. And therefore, you know, when chemical makers start to sound alarm about demand, that can be an indicator that you know overall global demand is is poor. But there's a, a particular thing that's going on in chemicals, and it, it also reflects on on broader the broader economy. And it's this: these chemical makers are talking a lot about destocking, and this, of course, is is a result of the pandemic that. Uh, we had these supply chain difficulties and, and, and it forced a lot of businesses to order huge amounts of, of stock because they worried uh, they were worried they wouldn't get any. And so the, what that's led to is businesses around the world are sitting on a lot of inventory. Therefore, when they start to worry that the economy is flowing, uh, naturally, the first thing they would do is say, well, we're not going to order any more just yet because we've already got a lot. And, and what we'd rather do is just run down those inventories. And then we'll see later in the year whether we needed to order some more. And that's a normal thing in the economy. You get restocking phases and destocking phases. What's strange, though, is that this destocking phase has been going on for a while now. Chemical makers started talking about destocking, you know, late last year, and they're still talking about it now. And they're saying it's going to continue for the rest of the year, which to me suggests that actually really the problem is that, you know, underlying demand is not very good. And in fact, we're seeing now, you know, if you look at the manufacturing data, um, services remain very strong, but manufacturing is essentially already in
1: recession. Does this mean then that this particular faction would be different from just your plain old run-of-the-mill everyday recession?
2: You know, you can slice up the global economy um, in different ways. Mm-hmm. And clearly right now, um, consumers are continuing to spend on services. Uh, they want to travel, they want to go to events, they want to socialize. What they're not doing as much, though, is buying stuff. Uh, everybody ordered everything they wanted uh, during the early part of the pandemic. Homes are full now of, of all the things everybody ever dreamed of having, and of course, therefore, uh, you're seeing this slowdown now in the in the manufacturing part of the economy. And so, while um, you know the employment levels remain very good and people are spending, they're not spending on on the kind of stuff that chemical products go into, and nor they're spending on the kind of things that you know manufacturers are producing. And therefore, you do have this kind of two-speed economy at the moment where, you know, if you look at the data, purchasing managers' data, uh, manufacturing in is, is a prolonged slump, uh, services remain relatively buoyant. So you can have these two things going on at the same time. I guess the question is whether, you know, one is going to pull down the other eventually. And uh, my feeling is that, yes, uh, when the chemical makers are saying that things are as bad as they, as they were in, in 2008, then it probably does mean some kind of recession is on the way
1: this is an indication not just that there's a slowdown in the chemical industry but because of that it may hint that there is a slowdown in manufacturing as a whole fewer things are being made because there's less of a demand for those things. What kind of things?
2: well I think we're talking about you know uh, durable goods essentially so anything from a sort of washing machine in your home to a you know uh, a barbecue for your for your deck outside and those are the kind of consumer products we're talking about um, on that side. Um, but, you know, we're you know this is a bit broader than just chemicals, of course. Um, and, you know, if you look at, and I cite a number of these examples in the piece of, uh, you know, people have been talking, for example, about a freight recession now for, for many months. And, and what that means is if you look at, you know, the, the volumes that the, the trucking companies are, are carrying or the, the volume of, of containers imported into the United States, those numbers have been falling off the cliff. And, and you know, um, trucking companies have been sounding the alarm about the recession for a while now. And the container, company, the container shipping companies, you know, the, the rates that they're able to charge it are really starting to slump. And I think that's the issue here, too, is that for a long time, um, you know, a lot of these chemical makers and um, other companies, were, they were suffering weak volumes, but they were able to, you know, sort of cover up for that with, with high pricing. And of course, we've seen companies across the economy being able to, to raise prices uh, and that's supported corporate profits. And indeed, some people are saying, you know, corporate profits are driving inflation. The problem is, though, if you start to get these very big volume declines, then the pricing power that some of these companies had is going to go away. And and that's what we've seen now. Some of the chemical makers you know talking also about pricing pressure coming in. It's just something new, of course, because until now, you know, when we had the supply chain crisis, you know, um, they were not only able to book really strong orders because people were just trying to order whatever they, they could, they were also able to do so at very high prices.
1: Is this yet another quirk from the pandemic. You mentioned the pandemic and the supply chain issue and how that sort of fell off a cliff's edge. I'm wondering how long this particular uh, faction has been coming.
2: I think it has been coming a while. And of course, it's a staggered uh, effect across the economy. So the first companies to warn about this, the stocking phenomenon, were, the, you know, the big box retailers in the United States last year, who were forced to say, yeah, now, now we've got too much stuff. People don't want to buy anymore." But you know there have been some notes out from analysts uh, recently pointing to the fact that raised inventories, so we're talking about even you know, sort of supplies of stocks, are a problem sort of across many sectors in the economy, and so you could get that effect start to happen in other sectors going forward. And 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 why? Because you know obviously you know companies at the moment they're looking very carefully at their cash flow. They're seeing uh, interest rates start to rise. Perhaps their debt costs go up. Uh, and therefore they need to save every penny they can. and one way you can do that of course is to optimize your working capital, which means you know essentially we sit on less inventory uh, uh, because of course the, you know the more stock you're holding the more cash is tied up in that in that stock. and as you start to run down those paths and of course you know that does put uh, you know pressure on the economy and it will tend to show up in the GDP GDP figures that people report invent you know inventories are a key component of that too. So my expectation in, in, in the coming months is that that would be negative, but for, for growth. Where's the rebound then? Normally, uh, you would say that, you know, this is a natural uh, cycle in the economy. You get, you know, as I said, uh, you know, de phases, restocking phases. And the hope is that as soon as you know, eventually a company will simply run out of, of stock, need to order some more and off you are go to the races again. As I said, the, the, the issue I think here is that this is becoming quite a prolonged thing. And of course, there's no real uh, what's the you know what's going to be the driver of that new restocking phase, and you know many of the companies uh, that warned on profits, and I'm talking here not just about Europe, but the United States, uh, to you know talks about China. There was this hope that China was going to drive the rebound, and unfortunately, that's not been the case. Normally, uh, in, in previous uh, you know down phases, uh, you know China has you know sort of applied some kind of massive stimulus, and off we've gone again. And, you know, we've had a decade or more now of, of, of Chinese of the Chinese real estate boom and massive uh you know flows into that sector. And of course that's now all come to a bit of a halt. And while you know China has rebounded as it's reopened its economy, you know, it's been very disappointing compared to what I think the global manufacturing sector had hoped. And and while that you know remains absent, I think it's very difficult to see what the catalyst might be, because clearly you know, it's difficult to know what's going to provide that, that turnaround that lifts the manufacturing sector out of the recession. It clearly seems to be in.
1: Thank you so much, Chris Bryant, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist who covers industrial companies in Europe. And coming up, a farewell to Dick Ravitch, a New York legend who passed away last week at the age of 89. He's known for saving both New York City and the Metro Transportation Authority from financial ruin back in the 1970s. We're going to learn all about him. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion.
0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. There was a time when the UK was a climate champion, setting the pace for tackling the climate change crisis. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak made a pledge to the 2022 United Nations Climate Change Conference just last
3: fall. For our part, the UK, which was the first major economy in the world to legislate for net zero, will fulfill our ambitious commitment to reduce emissions by at least 68% by 2030.
1: But now they seem to be falling behind, putting Britain's global standing at risk as other nations move ahead with bold new climate policies. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lara Williams covers climate change and she joins me now to talk about this. How has the UK helped drive change?
3: Yeah, so, you know, there are plenty of past successes to be proud of. The Climate Change Act in 2008 was the first time a legally binding emissions target had been set by a country. And in 2019, we were the first country to, you know, enshrine a net zero emissions to in law as well. And, you know, we've really kind of led the pack and inspired other countries to make these kind of commitments. But unfortunately, those, you know, that kind of period of climate leadership seems to be over.
1: So what happened?
3: Why is the UK lagging behind other countries now? I would say that it comes down to, you know, a cha- we've had several changes in leadership and the current leadership is not concerned climate change um, as a priority.
1: When you refer to leadership, are you talking about the prime minister? Because it seemed to be a priority last fall when he was talking to COP27 or the also known as the UN Climate Change Conference. What, has something changed since last fall?
3: Well, I suppose the cost of living crisis has, you know, made a big difference. We've got lots of other things to pay for in the Ukraine war as well. Um, Might have, you know, sort of shifted priorities, but other countries have really used the war as a way to kind of spark bold commitments on climate. We have the um, Inflation Reduction Act in the US and the EU also has, you know, big, bold, you know, agenda setting plans to make You know, climate change—the heart of the economy—and the UK just hasn't really done that.
1: Why is it important to be the leader? On the surface, would it matter as long as everybody does their part? Who is out front?
3: Well, you know, of course, any reductions anywhere is a reduction in carbon emissions, and that's great. Um, But the UK is—you know—we it's just—it's sad that we've lost our place um, in the world, and you know we were a, a global leader. Um, and we're gonna miss out on opportunities if we're not um, getting in now. If we're—if we're not, you know, putting ourselves out there as a good place to invest, we're gonna lose that investment, um, and we'll—we'll we'll fall behind and we'll lose, you know, global influence.
1: Ooh, let's talk about that the investment opportunities and how that could be lost if if they are no longer out in front or at least near the front of the pack on this. Give me a for instance.
3: You know, other countries are, you know, leading the pack on, so take for instance, the U.S. and carbon removal. Um, The U.S. is putting a lot of money into helping drive, um, you know, these new technologies, which will be important in, um, you know, removing those last stubborn bits of, you know, CO2 emissions from industries like aviation um, and industry. Um, agriculture, things like that, and so the US is really making it lucrative to invest. is really helping startups develop and become um, trustworthy, uh, reliable, you know, sources of carbon removal. The UK is good on the, you know, the science side. We have a lot of research and development, but you know, as it as things stand, it's not a good place to start a company uh, like a carbon removal company and you know, the America and the EU are kind of leading there.
1: If it's not the UK, then, Lara, who is it? Who's taking the lead now in tackling climate change?
3: Well, I think, you know, the European Union and the US have, you know, bold climate policies um, aimed at spurring green investment. Uh, I would say those, they're the, the kind of leaders right now
1: we haven't really expressed what it means to be a leader. Like, how do you uh, quantify that? What's the unit of measure that you use to say, oh, these guys are out in front on this versus somebody who may be lagging behind or completely off the chart?
3: So I'm thinking about, and I and I think the, you know, the Climate Change Committee who published a report recently which said, you know, the UK was lagging behind would look at policy implementation. Um, and so they're, they're kind of moving forward with really interesting and bold commitments and policies where the UK isn't. For instance, uh, you know, a a place where the UK could lead but is choosing not to, is on the demand side. So that's kind of things that make up individuals' carbon footprints, you know, switching to from a gas hub to an induction hub, buying an electric car, um, installing a heat pump. And we're really, really behind on all of these things. And part of the reason for that is that electricity has these green taxes, which makes them makes electricity as expensive, if not a little bit more expensive than gas. Um, That could be easily rectified by just taking off those green taxes and putting them on gas to make electricity cheaper. And so that would make it really, really easy for people to make these um, individual easy choices to to go. you know, be more eco-friendly in their daily lives. And that doesn't get us all the way to net zero, but it makes the job easier as we move forward. Um, And that, you know, hasn't been on the agenda necessarily uh, for the UK.
1: I wonder if there is a psychological risk among countries when you see a leader like the UK start to sort of slip and fall behind. Does it have a residual effect? Is there a risk of there being sort of a domino effect where the other countries, instead of stepping up and taking the lead, say, oh, you know, maybe maybe we can just take a minute, you know, and not have to worry about this as much. And everyone starts to fall behind and become more lackadaisical when it comes to this topic. Is that a risk?
3: I think that's definitely a risk and you know once the UK was inspiring it was inspiring other countries you know to to follow its lead and it's looking increasingly incredible you know when the UK is saying oh you should try and ditch coal but then it opens you know decides to open a a new coal mine in its own country then you know we're not going to be taken seriously on the world stage and um, it sends a message um, that you know climate action isn't as important, necessarily, um, as it once was.
1: And to that end, we just got word this week that Monday, the 3rd of July, was the hottest day ever recorded on Earth. Now, I know that this is relatively new information, but you do cover climate and climate um, issues for Bloomberg. So how does that factor into any decisions that might be made on a local state or municipal or governmental level, when you hear that sort of data that Monday was the hottest day ever recorded on Earth.
3: Yeah, it's I mean, it's really it drives it home that the fact that climate change is here and action needs to be made now. And I think, you know, when you be get events like this, it really brings it home to 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 people. And, you know, people are starting to care. You know, last year when we had um the UK reached 40 degrees Celsius, um, and that has never been seen before. And I think that was really a wake up call for people. And, you know, people are now really quite concerned about climate change and they would like to see climate action and that's becoming important to them. And so the more we see these record breaking days, um, the more scared that, you know, the general public are going to be, quite rightfully so, because it is quite scary. And, you know, the more that seeing leaders take climate action will be important to them.
1: Laura Williams is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist who covers climate change. And coming up, how legacy manufacturers can keep up in a world that seems dominated by new technology, especially AI. Can old school industry survive? Don't forget, we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify or your favorite podcast platform. This is Bloomberg Opinion.
0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. Legacy manufacturers have been trying to rebrand themselves as technology companies for 20 years or more, but even their own investors don't see it that way. They associate them more instead with chunks of metal whose sales are dictated by economic twists and turns. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Brooke Sutherland covers deals and industrial companies, and she's going to help clear this up for us. She joins us now. Brooke, always a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time with us. Right now, there is this big boom in artificial intelligence. First things first, is this a bubble?
4: Uh, well, I will leave that to the people who cover uh, the technology companies very closely. Um, but I do think, you know, what's interesting um, like you were saying that we do see industrial companies tend to sort of attach themselves to whatever the technology trend of the moment is. Um, And that is happening yet again with AI. But in this case, I think it actually does work um, because we're not trying to reposition these companies as sort of the next coming of AI, which is what we've seen in the past. GE used to say that it could be a top 10 seller of software. It didn't exactly work out that way. Um, But the reality is uh, to make AI work, you need... um, Um, graphics processing units, which require significantly more power um, than the central processing units that we use today, mostly um, in data centers. Uh, And when you have, you know, chips that require a lot more power, you need to um, have more electrical equipment to make all of that work. Uh, And then when they require a lot more power, they also get hotter. And so you need air conditioners um, and other types of cooling equipment to keep them cool. Um, And so this is really industrial companies' bread and butter um, is selling electrical equipment and air conditioning equipment. Uh, And so I do think there's an opportunity here um, to sort of tap into that growth. Uh, And these companies have already been benefiting from the uh, expansion of data centers. And this just gives another leg um, to that story.
1: AI is often seen as a threat, but you're saying this could be more of an opportunity and less of a threat if these legacy manufacturers can maybe pivot? Is pivot too strong a word?
4: I don't even think they need to pivot. Um, and I think that's what's interesting here is it's sort of a, a guaranteed continued relevancy for electrical equipment um, and different types of cooling technologies, mm-hmm. uh, which to your point is not what you can say for every industry. There's a lot of concern about AI, um, you know, blowing up uh, entire sectors that are backbones of the economy today. Um, but the reality is, is for these people, uh, systems to work, you, you need things like electrical equipment um, and air conditioners. And so I think that that um, continued relevancy is, is what's important here for the industrial companies.
3: Is that
1: something investors need to also keep in mind when it comes to industry and how it can dovetail with AI?
4: I think they already are. I mean, mm-hmm. I think one of the things that was really interesting to me as I started looking into this is there's a company called Vertive Holdings, um, which uh, used to be part of Emerson and then was sold to private equity and then went public again. Um, and it stock on a percentage basis had climbed as much as NVIDIA's um, since that company, the chipmaker, had a blockbuster earnings report um, where it laid out very ambitious growth forecasts for its chips that power AI and sort of got the market very excited about this. Um, and you could see investors saying, OK, well, if, you know, the opportunity is so great for NVIDIA, then it might also be really great for these industrial companies whose equipment will be needed to make this whole thing work as well. And
1: in your column on the Bloomberg Terminal, you actually use those companies as an example.
4: Um, Vertiv. Uh, Eaton is another big provider of data center equipment. Um, You also have Envent. And so these companies have been buoyed by enthusiasm around this idea of the electrification of everything as well. Um, And so this would be sort of another leg to that journey, but it's an important one to keep in mind. Um, And they don't, you know, they're investing in new technologies to adapt to the specific needs of AI, but this is really in their core wheelhouse. This is what these companies do. They make electrical equipment, or, you know, in the case of somebody like a train or a Johnson Controls, um, they make cooling equipment, cooling technologies. Um, And so I think that's why this, you know, this technology narrative Works better for industrial companies than some of the ones that have come in the past. Um, You know, one of the analysts uh, who covers the sector remembered in the dot-com days all these companies trying to pitch themselves as tech companies because they had managed to create a website. Um, And you know, we had the software boom of the 2015-2016 timeframe when all these companies were trying to say they were software companies with varying degrees of credibility. Um, But you know, because this is this is what these companies do and have been doing for years and years and years, I think they're much better suited to adapt to the unique demands of AI and and the incumbents do have an advantage here.
1: We are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Brooke Sutherland about how legacy manufacturers are navigating the AI boom. And uh, you were just saying, uh, Brooke, about how for years, way before AI, but for the past 20 years or more, legacy manufacturers have tried to remain relevant by rebranding themselves as tech companies. Your point is, You don't have to do that. You just need to show that you're relevant to the tech company because they're going to need what you've got.
4: Right, exactly. And I mean, and there's some question of like, you know, does this mean that industrial companies are necessarily going to outperform the rest of the economy? Would they best necessarily benefit more from AI than other companies? I don't know if I'm willing to go that far, but like I said, I think just continuing to be relevant um, and that your equipment will be needed to empower this AI wave, whatever it ends up ultimately looking like, is not the same for every industry. And there's lots of industries that will no longer exist in a world of AI, and, and we will continue to need electrical equipment and air conditioning
1: did you find there's some skepticism about prospects for a type of a spending extravaganza of sorts to support these data centers for ai
4: sure i mean i think there's a healthy amount of skepticism on all of these kind of mega trends um, that industrial companies talk about so it's not just ai spending but also you know that electrification of everything uh the um reshoring trend the extent to which that is or isn't happening um and we've seen companies dial back spending on data centers um in the immediate term uh, where they maybe got a little over extended um you know specifically uh meta the parent of facebook has talked about curbing its spending but it's doing so because it wants to adjust um how it uh, the design of its data centers to adapt for the potential of ai um, but there is a question of you know do ai identify AI de- data centers, because they're designed to be more efficient um, and more capable, do they ultimately need, you know, more electrical equipment relative to uh, older versions of data centers? And I think that's a question that we don't necessarily have the answer to just yet.
1: I, yeah, In fact, just to play off of that for a moment, if I could, I was... Kind of looking down the road then, not months, not years, but decades from now, depending on how AI develops and how technology develops, will there be a time when the classic legacy industrial type things are going to have to find a way to pivot to keep up with that technology? Or will there always be that need for the big chunks of metal that we've been depending upon for the past hundred years?
4: Sure. I mean, I think there's. Um a lot we still don't know about, you know, the ways that AI will change the world. But I do think, you know, that, um, you still need you know uh excavators to build buildings i don't know if we can you know train or there will be some sort of metal needed to, sure. to do these sure. things at some point in the time um can't just do it by brain power just yet i don't yet. know if that's <laughs> in the cards um so you know there is uh like i said there, there's a continued relevance um for a lot of these companies they will certainly have to adapt there are always trends out there that these companies um Need to adapt to, and some do it better than others, um, and which is always interesting to watch.
1: Is there any risk that the manufacturers aren't going to be able to keep up with demand or the trends? Is there any risk that they're going to have to learn something new to be able to keep up with what's down the road?
4: Sure. I mean, so you know, the electrical equipment companies already have very uh, long backlogs that they're chipping away with right now. Um, So the idea is that this would be incremental to that demand. Now they're struggling to meet the demand that they already have. Um, and so there are some supply chain issues to be worked out there. Now, in terms of adapting, I do think, you know, one of the bigger questions is, will there be sort of small upstart companies that will come out with specifically, you know, the cooling technologies that are needed for um, AI uh, enabling data centers. Um, and I, I do think the incumbents do have an advantage here and they, they invest in technologies um, and well, typically, this tends to be the company that um, the companies that like the large technology giants want to buy from. But um, there's always that possibility of an upstart coming in, and, and the incumbents will need to be, you know, on their toes and make sure they're investing in what they need to be for their technology to continue to stay relevant.
1: It is going to be really interesting to watch how this all unfolds, and and the idea that there's room for both AI and the more traditional legacy manufacturers is is, is comforting. Thank you, Brooke, so much for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. Dick Ravich passed away last week at the age of 89. He is seen as the last of the liberal fiscal conservatives, a former lieutenant governor of New York known for being the guy behind the scenes to build bridges to solve problems and was influential on a national level as well. We learn more now from Allison Schrager, a Bloomberg opinion columnist, who say in your column on the Bloomberg Terminal that his passing is the end of an era. How so?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it used to be that maybe people were a little bit more to the center and on both sides. And, um, really believed that fiscal responsibility was a big part of good governance and that even if you wanted more progressive policies, you also needed sustainable ways to pay for them.
1: So he was a liberal but still didn't necessarily see tax the rich as the answer to fixing the debt?
0: Well, he definitely, I think, supported more progressive taxes, but he didn't think that was the be-all end-all. And also, I mean, it's worth noting that most of his work was on the state municipal level, and he definitely saw that if you tax the rich to high heaven, that eventually they might leave the state. So, you know, while there's definitely room for progressive taxes, I think he was wary of the idea that this could solve all of our problems.
1: What was his legacy in New York? You describe him as being somebody who could work behind the scenes to help bridge those opposed. Sides.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, unless you were sort of really like in the know of these things, you didn't realize just quite how influential he was. I know, because we became friends in his last years, because I, I'm, I'm incredibly passionate about public sector pension reform, and he was too, because he saw this as another sort of unsustainable benefit. And he, but the thing is, you have to understand, is he understood how important those pensions were to people. Like, I think people confuse, and this is what I think is unusual about him and is, and, and, and is sort of a big loss, is to be concerned about how things are financed doesn't mean you don't think they should exist. It just means that they need to be have a sustainable way of being financed so people can genuinely count on them because he was behind the scenes, not only in New York state politics, but certainly in the Detroit bankruptcy and the Puerto Rico bankruptcy. And you saw that when pensioners have their benefits cut, how financially devastating it is to them. And sort of fiscal profligacy really puts you in that vulnerable position where those things can happen.
1: What were his concerns about the stimulus and the money that was blowing actually to people during the
0: pandemic? Well, I think he was very concerned that, you know, while states got all this sort of financial largesse, they also were spending more. And eventually that money goes away. And then this could set them up to be very, even more vulnerable in the future. I mean, we went into the pandemic, a lot of states, and municipalities were in a very vulnerable position, they became flush with cash. And, you know, they weren't necessarily not all, I mean, it's hard to make, there's a lot of states and cities, and some are better than others. But some sort of use that opportunity to spend more rather than sort of create more rainy day funds and be responsible. So now we might be coming out of that with them even being even more vulnerable.
1: Did he have much of a nationwide influence in your column? You mentioned that he did have some influence nationally.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, in the time I met him, he would put together all these meetings and you would meet people from all over the country who were passionate about state municipal finances. And as I said, he was very involved in Puerto Rico and Detroit and, you know, talking to uh, people in California about states and cities there that were having problems. So, I mean, really, he was the go-to guy for state municipal finances all over the country.
1: Is there anyone out there who shares this philosophy or who can follow in his footsteps?
0: I honestly, I mean, I certainly met a lot of people through him, but certainly not who have the charisma. I mean, everything as well is so politicized now. The fact that he was just a true and true progressive and a Democrat, but also really passionate about fiscal responsibility meant he really could build bridges because Republicans, some were concerned about that too, although less so. You know, people could really come together about these shared concerns. And now, I mean, it all seems like everything gets politicized on both sides. And it's hard to find people. As I said, It gets confused. If you get concerned about pensions or finance, people sort of just lump you in assuming that you don't want pensions at all. He had the credibility for both sides, and I honestly can't think of anyone who does today.
1: Bloomberg Opinion columnist Alison Schrager covers economics for Bloomberg, and that does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. We are produced by Eric Mollo, and you can find all of these columns on the Bloomberg Terminal. We're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines just ahead. I'm Amy Morris, and this is Bloomberg.